Open your Bibles, please, to Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. Hey, Sean, can you, can you kill this fan for me, please? Thank you. I'll be in Joshua real quick if we don't get that fan off. Father, we come before you and we are so thankful that you've revealed yourself to us in your word. And we ask you now to open our eyes and our ears as we pray on a regular basis to give understanding uh, to our hearts and minds that we might know you. We might love you and seek you with all of our hearts and souls. Give us ears to hear and lives to live for you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Judges chapter 2, I'm going to read from verse 10. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groanings because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt. Than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people has transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars of Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites 
who lived in Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. I hope you're enjoying the book of Judges. I've heard several people talk about it a little bit. They're reading through. I hope you read it again and again and again. If you've never read the book of Judges before, you'll be shocked at what you read, and hopefully as we walk our way through it, um, we'll have more and more understanding of how God works among his covenant people. Um, just by way of introduction, when anyone preaches through a book of the Bible, narratives in particular, there's a number of things that must take place, and I'm just going to mention two. Like a decent drama on, that you watch on TV or, or somewhere, every sermon should stand alone. It should have a beginning, it should have a middle, and it should have an end. But there's also recurring themes that we're going to continue to see that, that are similar to watching a TV drama where it has a beginning, it has a middle, it has an end, but there's a thought line and a, and a process where these themes come back over and over and over again, and these themes are woven into the plot line. When I preach through Judges, each sermon should stand alone. It should have a beginning, a middle, and an end. At the same time, we're going to see these recurring themes, and at the same time, these recurring themes won't be explained all in one setting. You're going to get bits and pieces along the way, and by the time we're done, hopefully all the pieces will, will fit together and be woven into a complete whole. So every sermon is critical to every other sermon, and this is why we have to backtrack from time to time, and this is why you don't want to miss. You want to be here to hear the big story from beginning to end. If you leave here with any unanswered questions in the days and the weeks and the months ahead, hopefully as you continue to come, they'll be answered as we walk through this text. Now, as we continue our way this morning through Judges, we're going to see God working in and through his covenant people. Even though they're doing evil, even though they're serving the Baals and the Ashtaroth, even though they've abandoned him, even though they've forgotten all the great things that God has done to bring them out of the wilderness and into the promised land, what we're going to see as we look at our text more carefully this morning is what my sermon title for today, The Shocking Mercy of our covenant-keeping God. Last week, we noticed their disobedience in five areas. They didn't destroy the people when they took possession of the land that was theirs. They didn't pass God, his glory, his works, his character, and his wonders on to their children. The next generation of children did not believe in the God of Israel. There was no distinction between the nation of Israel and the nations around them. And then fifthly, they serve the gods of the world around them in serving the one true and living God. And last week, as on a personal note, as I walk through these areas of disobedience, I found myself identifying with this generation in the book of, the Ju book of Judges, and I, I shared this last Sunday. I had to admit that as a, as a believer, I've been disobedient at times. As a believing father, I do not believe that I've, I taught my children about God the way I should have 
And I shared with you that for a time period, we didn't faithfully attend church many, many years ago. There are times in my Christian life when I have not been distinctly different than the world around me. And there are times when I have served the gods of this world instead of the one true and living God. And it's important for me to share that with you, not to highlight myself by any means, is that you should be able to identify with the people in the book of Judges as well. The book of Judges is, is about the nation of Israel, but the nation of Israel is in a covenant relationship with God. Israel is God's chosen people, and so are you if you're a believing Christian. You are part of God's covenant family. This is one of the recurring themes that we'll continue to come back to. So the application of the book of Judges is not meant for you and I to make a comparison between Israel and the United States. We're not to look and say, look at America. We're just like Israel in the book of Judges. We're worshiping false gods. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. The United States is not part of God's covenant family. Only believing Christians are. So we can't say that. We have to say this. Look at us. Look at God's covenant people. Look at the church. We are just like those individuals in the book of Judges. We are disobedient. No distinction between the church and the world. We follow after the world's gods. We do what's right in our own eyes instead of following God and his word. Now, especially for you visitors today, has a little bit of a sting to it, doesn't it? You didn't come all the way over here for me to tell you how our own pride and our own self-righteousness immediately wants to come to our rescue. You want to say, no, 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 come on, Rick. We're, I mean, we're kind of bad, but we're not that bad. But just think through the New Testament. Think through the examples of churches in the New Testament. How about the church of Corinth, right? This is a Bible-believing church. Apostle Paul wrote two, possibly three letters. No distinction between the church and the world. Uh, the one man, early in the, in, the, in the text, is sleeping with his stepmom, and the church approves. Church members aren't getting along. Some are taking others to court. They're suing one another. They're men from the church going to temple prostitutes. We don't have to do that today because we have pornography. Uh, there are people getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Strife, division. Those in the church were being yoked to either unbelievers in business or marriage because Paul had to tell them they're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. I mean, the sins of the book of Judges are the sins of the Corinthian church, which are the sins of Grace Fellowship Church and all churches, actually. And as we study through the book, it should expose our sin. It should expose our depravity. It should expose our impurity, expose our own strife, our own division, our own love of the world, our own lack of commitment to Christ and his church. It should expose our factions and our failures and our lack of distinction from the world. And once those are all exposed, it should drive us to the only one who can save. We sang about it earlier, didn't we? When our sin comes to light, it moves us, even as believers, to look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh, and ransomed us. Come behold the wondrous mystery. He, the perfect Son of Man, in his living, in his suffering, never trace nor stain of sin 
See the truth and better Adam come to save the hellbound man, Christ the great and sure fulfillment of the law. In him we stand. See, when our sin's exposed, if it doesn't bring us to Christ, it doesn't bring us to repentance, it doesn't bring us to genuine change, then we will slide like those in the book of Judges. And how thankful we are that when our sins are many, his mercy is more. And clearly, I think what's the most frightening, and we said this last week, <coughs> is that our drift from being faithful to God to rejecting him can happen in one generation. We said that last week, and that motivated us to ask the question as whether or not a church can die in one generation. Of course, the answer is yes. If it happened in the book of Judges, it could happen today. Even at the height of the nation's prosperity, when David was king and passed it on to Solomon and then Rehoboam, uh, we have a spiritual decline marked by the sins of the leaders between David's adultery and Solomon's uh, many wives and then Rehoboam's not listening to the godly counsel. Within less than a hundred years, less than a hundred years, the nation is rejecting God and they're split. I mean, it's in the United States. Some of our institutions that you're familiar with, Harvard and Yale and Princeton, they used to train preachers. Jonathan Edwards uh, graduated from Yale, and he was the president of Princeton. And those institutions aren't even remotely close to where their theological roots were 2,200 years ago. But we have examples of this in the book of Revelation, don't we? Go ahead and turn there for a moment. <coughs> I won't read all seven churches, but there's examples of this. There's examples of churches dying and losing their candlestick. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, the Apostle John speaking to the church at Ephesus. <coughs> Excuse me. Revelation 2, 4. He says, I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen... Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This lampstand removal was considered a removal or the end of the church. And if the people in this church didn't repent, it's just saying they would die. Chapter 3, verse 3, the church at Sardis. Chapter 3, verse 3, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you'll not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you'll not know at what hour I'll come against you. You know, apart from their waking up from their spiritual slumber and genuine repentance, the Lord Jesus was going to come against this particular church at an unexpected time like a thief. And then chapter 3, verse 15. Chapter 3, verse 15, speaking to the church at Laodicea. The Apostle John writes, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you would either would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Not a very pleasant thought to think of being vomited or spit out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus because of living a lukewarm, no conviction, no passion, just life of spiritual neutrality. And my only point in bringing this up 
is that by the grace of God, we don't want it to be said about us, as we go back to Judges chapter 2, we don't want it to be said about us that Judges 2.10 is true. We don't want it to be said that there's another generation after them who didn't know the Lord or the work that he had done. I mean, by God's grace, we want to be faithful to the next generation and tell them about the greatness of our God. We want to tell them about his wonders and his works and his character so that they'll know him and love him and worship him and have a high regard for his person and his word. When I look at our congregation as a whole, not, not including our visitors this morning, but in general, we all know that we have an older congregation. And, and we are on a trajectory of losing the next generation. This is why it's so on my heart and mind. As I said last week, this starts in the home. Let me pause just for, for a moment and encourage you young parents who still have kids under your care that if you haven't attempted to read God's word as a family, pray as a family, sing as a family, and you need some help, need some encouragement, let me encourage you to talk to Deborah I. There are so many resources available today that were never available when we were raising our kids. And we can direct you to them and hopefully be an encouragement. In fact, when my gra our grandkids come, I have a whole host of them here. I, I will, we'll let you see all of them. If, you, if you're not familiar with some other resources, we would love to help you. I won't take the time to read them all to you right now. We'd be here all afternoon. And for you husbands, if you don't have children in your home, if you have never had a plan to, to, to read and pray and sing with your spouse, you can scratch the singing if you want to, but at least reading and praying. Let me encourage you to start. If it's never been part of your life before, there are some couples that read scripture together. Uh, there are some couples who just read a devotional together. There, there are some couples that listen to a radio show or a podcast together. Some may do things separately and then talk about what they're learning. There's so much freedom in these areas, but we've got to do things that start the conversation at home about Christ, his work, and his word. He needs to fill you up so that you have something to talk about. It starts in the home. That's not true, though. It starts before the home. It starts with you becoming a believing Christian. That's what it starts with. See, a person's been redeemed by Christ and forgiven by Christ, and now has new internal longings to know him, and to love him, and to worship him. And if you don't have those desires, then you'll never go ahead and fulfill this. So you have to examine your heart to see if you're in the faith, because all of what I said are just byproducts of salvation. So it starts with you, and then it extends to your home. And we, as a leadership, we want to promote this also in the church. There's some who have asked the question, well, why doesn't Grace Fellowship have Sunday school? I'm going to get to Judges. This is all part of, I'm still in Judges 2.10, okay? I'm still in Judges 2.10. This is actually introduction number six for those who have been, been here for the last five sermons. We're getting there. Um, when I first became pastor a couple years ago, we had an adult Sunday school class that was made up mostly of people who came on Wednesday nights. There's never been a children's Sunday school, at least since I've been here. We're actually just a few weeks before training leaders to be Sunday school teachers when COVID hit. We're on a trajectory where we're getting organized and, and we're very excited about it, but then it hasn't, hasn't materialized since then. Today, I counted. If every family 
who's connected to Grace Fellowship, who would say, Grace Fellowship is the church I attend. If every family who would say that, including the few new families who have been coming, if every family, all their kids came to church on the same Sunday, we would have 23 kids between the nursery and high school. 23 kids if they all came on the same Sunday. That's more than enough to have a Sunday school, isn't it? Isn't it? We can start planning next week. If we had all 23 kids, we'd have plenty of room, plenty of classes. That would also mean that nine couples would have to bring their kids. And unless they help teach, they would be in class with other couples, hearing God's word, bearing each other's burdens, getting to know each other, praying for one another. Then you add those who don't have any kids, and they came. Sunday school would be a huge blessing to the entire church family. We think Sunday school is the better option and a more biblical option than having kids' church during the worship service. We think Sunday school, we think Sunday school is the better option and a more biblical option than having children's church or kids' church during the worship service. Deuteronomy 31:12. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. And be careful to do all the words of this law, that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, as long as you live in the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. Your young children being part of congregational worship. We do have a nursery for, I think, four and under or three and under. But your children is designed to help them hear and learn and to fear the Lord. In consistent congregational gatherings over the long haul, God works in little hearts and minds in ways that we cannot fully understand. They won't get everything, but they will understand that coming before the Lord in prayer and in singing and hearing from God's word with a congregation is a fundamental part of the Christian life. And they'll see the importance of gathering for worship and sitting under his word, even in their tiny little minds. And then being in the service is a tremendous blessing to us older people as well. It also makes it so the adults don't have to miss the service because week after week after week, they're teaching kids when they should be in the service, learning and growing with us. Beloved, pray about these things. We'd love to have Sunday school. Pray that God would raise up teachers and pray that people would be on their hearts to begin something like this. We don't want verse 10 to be said about Grace Fellowship. We want our next generation to know God and to know his word and to know his works. We want to bring the gospel to the next generation. Now, when I say, just for clarification, the church can die in one generation, I'm talking about specific churches like the names in, in Revelation, Ephesus, Sardis, Philadelphia. We know the Lord Jesus will never allow his church to die throughout the world. He promised it would go. He promised the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But churches in various places do die, and we pray it doesn't happen to us. Now, as we come back to Judges 2, I want to say from the beginning that this passage through all the way of chapter 3, verse 6, lays the foundation, lays the pattern for the cycles of the entire book. God's people disobey. God is angry and sends plunderers in judgment. The people cry out for mercy. God hears them. He has pity on them. Then he sends judges to deliver. People have relief. The judge dies. Instead of being grateful and thankful, the people turn their backs on God and are more corrupt than they were previously. 
Then it starts over again. God sends plunderers. The people cry for mercy. God has pity. God sends a judge or a deliverer. The people have relief. The judge dies. The people turn their back on God again, and they're worse than before. And then you just hit the repeat button over and over and over. The cycle goes on for about 350 years, and things continue to get worse and worse and worse. So what you're going to see today is a pattern or a cycle, and you'll see this until we come to the end. And in each chapter, each narrative, each story, there's going to be a steady downward spiral into the abyss of sin and rebellion and corruption and perversion on account of a wholesale rejection of God. And in the middle of all of this, all of this, the overarching theme again is the shocking mercy of our covenant-keeping God. You may not have heard the word covenant before. It just means treaty. It means agreement. There are multiple covenants or agreements that God has made throughout Scripture. One that might be the most familiar is the covenant he made with Noah. He promised he would never destroy the world again with a flood, and he left the rainbow for us to, to, to mark that covenant. We looked at the Abrahamic covenant multiple times here at Grace Fellowship. There's a Davidic covenant. God made a covenant with David that, that he will have one of his descendants on the throne forever and ever and ever. Of course, we know it's fulfilled in Christ, and there's more than that. The covenant that we're concerned with is the one God made with the descendants of Abraham, the people of Israel, we've already seen that God promised he will give the nation the land as an inheritance. And part of their covenant or their agreement was the nation was required to obey, follow, and serve God. Turn with me to Joshua 23 for a moment. Joshua 23, and let's listen in to Joshua explain to the people of Israel some of the obligations that they have because they're in a covenant relationship with God. I'll read from verse 11. <coughs> the right Joshua states, Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. You see, this is the requirement of the covenant. You must love God. You must obey him. You must serve him, which is not to be a problem because we love him because he first loved us. And to the Israelites, he demonstrated his love for them by caring for them, by delivering them from Egypt, by keeping them in the wilderness, by delivering them into the promised land. God loves his people, and the people are required to love God back. Verse 12. For if you turn your back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you, and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you. Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. You see, if you do not keep your part of the covenant, God is telling Israel you'll, you'll no longer have what's promised. He will not drive out the nations, and you'll be driven out of the land that God has promised you if you violate his covenant. Verse 14, Joshua says, And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Now, what's he saying, what's he saying there? 
He's just saying that God kept his part. God kept his part of the covenant. God fulfilled all of his promises. And then verse 15. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he's destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. You see, the nation of Israel was in a covenant relationship with the Lord God. They were commanded to love him and not go after other gods, which, by the way, is just, is just the first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. And you will not have worship any idols. They were also told not to intermarry with the nations. And they're being warned right now about what will happen if they violate the covenant. Joshua told them, as sure as you've received good things for your obedience, just as surely God's anger will be against you if you break his covenant. And the point I'm making here as you go back to Judges 2 is that God's anger is against them. And his anger against them is part of him keeping his covenant. We know from verse 15 where the writer says this. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. As the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. The people had been warned that they're in a covenant relationship. And God swore that if they disobeyed, if they followed other gods, he would be angry. He would punish them and they would not have the land. And we've already seen in verse 11 through 13, the clear violation. They, they did what was evil. They served Baal. They abandoned the Lord in verse 12. They went after other gods. They bowed down to them. And then verse 13 reminds us that they abandoned the Lord. They're in the covenant. So what is God supposed to do? Think of the covenant that you all have as married couples. Think of the covenant you came into as husband and wife. You stood before the people at your wedding. You declared your love and said vows in front of God and the person who officiated it and, 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 and in the ceremony and, and all the invited guests. You even signed a document with other witnesses that's recorded in a county courthouse to affirm and confirm your marriage covenant that you made. It was before God and these witnesses and your pronounced man and wife. You promised to love and honor and cherish until death do you part. It's a covenant that was made out of love. And if your spouse violates that covenant, certainly it's forgivable. We know that, and many people work through that. But but for sake of illustration here, when a spouse violates that covenant, violates the pledge of purity, violates the pledge of fidelity and love and faithfulness, if that's violated, I mean, your response is not, no worries. Ah, be happy. Ah, you win some, you lose some. No. It's just like in verse 12 and 14. Your anger will be, conti- will be kindled. Your anger will be kindled against your spouse and against the person he or she's with. And you'll be provoked to a righteous and deserved anger. And that red-hot anger over the violation of the covenant is a byproduct of the love you have for your spouse. If you weren't jealous or upset, then you probably prove you didn't love the person in the first place. And God's jealous anger at his people 
for their going after other gods is a byproduct of his love for them. So he fulfills the covenant he made with them by bringing the plunderers to plunder them as he swore to them and as he warned them because he loves them. His jealous love provokes him to anger because he demands covenant faithfulness. Verse 14 states it. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of the surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. That's a loving response by a loving, loving covenant-keeping God. He's the one who gives us over. He's the one who sells us. He's the one who makes it so we no longer can defeat our enemies. Now, this isn't just in the Old Testament, is it? This is in the New Testament, right? Uh, Turn with me to to Hebrews chapter 12. We've seen this before. We'll look at it one more time. He does this today in the lives of disobedient Christians, just like he did in the Old Testament with the book of Judges. Hebrews 12. I could easily spend a lot of time here. I just want to read a couple verses. I'll read from verse 5. And again, his... Desire, as God disciplines and chastises believers, his motivations out of love. Verse 5 says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The word discipline there means to punish for the purpose of improved behavior. And the word chastise means to punish severely, implying whipping. God does not have spoiled children. And his covenant love moves him to send plunder, so to speak, moves him to chastise and discipline those he loves. And the purpose, according to verse 10, is for our good so that we might share in his holiness, become more like him, become more Christ-like, bring us back in fellowship with him. He jealously loves us. And back in Judges 2, he sends a difficulty into the lives, those he's in covenant relationship with in the Old and New Testament. But in Judges 2, notice now, notice now that the love that causes His jealous anger also causes compassionate pity. When the Israelites are being plundered, being sold into slavery, and God's against them, this caused them, according to verse 15, to be in terrible distress. Now we know from verse 14, he says, he gave them to the plunderers. He sold them. Take that. Take that. Take that. He's doing all of it. And then what does he do in verse 16? Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered him. He reverses field. Do you see why I titled this? The shocking mercy of our covenant-keeping God. He sends plunderers. And then he sends judges to save them out of the hand of those who plunder them, even when, according to verse 17, his deliverance didn't cause them to behave any differently. In in, in fact, we'll see in a moment, they got worse, not better. And yet he still raises up judges, and he still saves them. And verse 18 says, the Lord is with the judge. He causes his people to be in terrible distress. Because they deserved it. 
They broke the covenant. And then he saves them. We can understand that as parents, can't we? You ever discipline your kids and then have pity on them? Some of you are saying, no, never. <laughs> Even in their rebellion, we have pity upon them. And our God is compassionate and gracious and kind. I, I, I remember in my own life, my own life, many, many years ago, when I was struggling, um, I, I had been honest about the fact that this was like almost three decades ago, we stopped attending church. God was disciplining me. He was chastising me. And all the issues I was facing in my business, my personal life, were all self-induced. All self-induced. Nothing's going right. I was in my work truck. I parked in a parking lot. And I didn't put it in, in gear. And I didn't put the brake on. It was a little bit of a slope. And so it's a neutral. I walk away from it, and I step back. And all of a sudden, I see everything I have in my work truck going backwards down the parking lot, over the easement, over the sidewalk, over the curb, into a two-way street, over the curb, over the sidewalk, over the easement, and it lands safely on the other side, sitting there. No marks, no scuffs, nothing happened to it. And in my own understanding of all that God was doing in my life at that moment, I said to myself, if there was ever a day, Lord, that you could have reduced me to nothing, here was your chance, because I deserved it. Instead, he's moved to pity, and he spared me from being plundered. God, thank you for not giving me what I deserve. Thank you for seeing my terrible distress being moved to pity and giving me what I don't deserve. Do you see the shocking mercy of a covenant-keeping God? And as you go on to the text, it doesn't even stop there. Look at verse 19 and 20. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice. Stop right there. Don't look anymore. Stop. Don't read any further. Knowing what you know about the covenant. Knowing what we know about our jealous God. Knowing his glory and his covenant faithfulness and his holiness and his desire for us to be holy. Knowing his judgment and his wrath and, and delivering. And he delivered the people from Egypt. He delivered them from the wilderness and Jericho and Ai and the sons of Anak. He, he put them in a land they didn't deserve. And then he sent plunderers, and then he rescued the undeserving people from the plunderers through a judge. He did all of that, and now they're more corrupt than their fathers. They didn't stop any of their idolatry, any of their worship of false gods, any of their stubborn practices. And verse 20 declares, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And then he tells us why. They transgressed the covenant. They haven't obeyed. Now, honestly, if you didn't have your Bible with you and you didn't know what was coming next, 
what would you expect the next verse to say? I would expect it to say, so he fulfilled his promise to drive them out of the land and poured his wrath upon them. And all the curses came upon them. And he, and he eliminated them and he annihilated them and he destroyed them as they worked with these rebels. That, that, that's what I would expect. Maybe it's just me. But what do you have in verse 20? The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, God speaking, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I'll no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they'll take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. After all the discipline, all the chastisement, the plundering because of their own sin and being in terrible distress, <clears throat> then being delivered because of God's mercy and his pity, even though this does nothing to change their desires. In fact, in chapter 3, 6, we find out they start intermarrying with the pagan nations. And yet, instead of giving them what they deserve, he gives them grace. He gives them what they don't deserve. And through this unmerited grace, he gives them more chances to return to him. More chances to believe in him. More chances to repent and to follow him. Instead of destroying them, he puts them in a place of testing. A place with a possibility of turning and repenting. It's just the shocking mercy of our covenant-keeping God. And as you read through the rest of the chapter, through verse 6 of chapter 3, uh, the list of nations, he says it again in verse 4. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord. Which I think means some would. And as we continue to walk over through the book, we're going to find that some do. What a shocking and surprising and gracious and compassionate God we serve. He holds them accountable for their sin. They don't get the land. They don't receive the promises. But he leaves them with a tremendous hope. Ezekiel 18, 23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And what were Jesus' dying words on the cross? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You know, there's joy in heaven when one sinner repents. And even in the middle of all this sin and all this apostasy, all this turning from God, God spares the people because there's a remnant. There's some who will believe there's always a remnant. There's some who will take care and obey and walk faithfully. There's some who will turn and walk by faith. There's some who will believe. There's some who will put away their foreign gods. There's some who will pass truth on to their kids. And there's some young people who will believe. And it's his mercy that stays his hand. Still consequences. Life in the land will not be easy. But in those consequences, there's hope. Because some do come. Their names are recorded in Hebrews 11. They're people of faith in the book of Judges, and we'll discover them as we continue on. So let me just ask you a question. H has God given you what you deserve? 
Or has he given you chance after chance after chance to bow before him and to trust in him? What have you done with his mercy? Romans 2.4 reminds us, don't presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Has it? Has God's kindness moved you to turn from your sin and trust Christ to deliver you from your sin? The shocking mercy of our covenant-keeping God is on display. Not so we'll take advantage of it. Rather, so we'll embrace it and we'll embrace him. And when we do, he will hold us fast as we close in song. Let's pray.